was the fall of 1994, and I started my seminary studies at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in South Hamilton, Massachusetts, which is about 30 miles north of Boston. And it was only a couple weeks into the semester, and I had made a group of friends, and we were sitting around, and we were trying to decide what we were going to do that weekend. And somebody said the Danvers County Fair was going on. And I thought, well, that'd be great. It's been a long time since I've been to the county fair. And so I think it was a Friday night, piled into a couple cars, and we headed off to the Danvers County Fair. And I thought back to my days of growing up and going to the county fair. And I was so excited. And we parked at the fair, and all the different things were going on. And we checked the little marquee, the big board that had the activities going on for the night. And one of the activities was the tractor pull. And I started getting really excited, and I told my friends, I said, if we don't do anything else tonight, we have to go to the tractor pull. I have to fill you in on one other item that's important is, I grew up in Sawyer, Michigan, in, in Berrien County. In Berrien County, youth fair was always billed as the Midwest's largest youth fair. And so you would go to the Midwest, uh, to the Berrien County Youth Fair, and there'd be all kinds of activities. And one of the big highlights was the tractor pull. Now at the Berry Encounter Youth Fair, if you've never been and seen the tractor pulls that they have here, the tractors don't look anything like the tractors you may have had on your farm. The tractors there can sometimes have these six or 800 horsepower engines, smokestacks spewing smoke out the top where you have to plug your ears when they start up. They're more like a monster truck than a tractor. And so they get fired up, and you could be on the other side of the fairgrounds, and when the tractor pulls, you could hear the announcer, no, 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 and you're, and you'd see dirt flying everywhere. And when I saw the sign at the Danvers County Fair that said tractor pull, that's what I was thinking. And I told my friends, I said, oh, the tractor pull is so awesome. So we got in the stands, we sat down in the stands, and the first tractor pulled out. <laughs> and now a 1934 Massey Ferguson. And, and it took like 35 minutes for this tractor to get from one end to the other. Carl thinking tractor pull. <laughs> Smoke flying. Tractor pull. And you realize... and. So one, I think I lost a few friends that night. <laughs> but my friend's looking at me and thinking, oh, wow, yeah, this is exciting. I can see you had a great childhood growing up. And I said, no, 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 this is not what a tractor pull looks like. And that's how it works sometimes. We see words, we have ideas, and we think one thing when we read a word based on our experience. I see tractor pull and I think, tractors, tractors, tractors. Somebody in Massachusetts thinks tractor pull and they think. And the same thing happens in our Bible sometimes. is depending on where we've grown up, the words we've heard, the things we've done. Read a word, we see a phrase, and we get an idea in our head. But sometimes... What the biblical writer means is not the same thing that we have in our head. We sometimes think tractors, 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 and they just mean tractor. 
or vice versa. And that is part of what goes on here in our passage from James today. Is that we hear words, and depending on where we've grown up, where we've been a part of going to church, we hear words like faith and deeds, faith and action. And as soon as we hear those words, we have categories. We have pictures. We have ideas. But what we need to do sometimes is readjust and think about what it is that James is talking about, to pay attention to his context and what it is that he's saying. So we're going to be in James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. So we're in a series on the book of James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing this letter to the early church, maybe 25, 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's helping to encourage them. This is a church that's scattered, a church that's struggling, a church that's trying to make its way in this new world, trying to figure out what it looks like, how to operate. And if you read the book of James, it sounds very much like the book of Proverbs. There's all these little pithy statements and things going on. And James also, if you go back to the Gospel of Matthew and were to read the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7, you'd recognize a lot of similarities. Well, James followed Jesus and he was his brother, so it's not unusual that not surprising that he sounds a lot like Jesus. And so James starts off the letter and he talks about trials and temptations and about how we can see those as joy because they do indeed grow us to look like Jesus. Then he goes on about this importance of listening and doing and he talks about mirrors, just like Rhonda talked about earlier with their kids' message about mirror, that how she talked about you look in the mirror and you look in a mirror for a purpose and What would be the good of looking in the mirror if you don't do something with it? And James says the same thing with our Bibles or with God speaking to us. It doesn't do any good to go and read it and then do nothing with it. And then he talked, what we talked about last week was about favoritism, how there's a tendency sometimes to look to certain people and elevate them and try and get close to them, maybe because of what they can do for us. And the call of followers of Jesus is to do something different, is to look for those on the margins, those on the outside, those who are oppressed, and instead of favoritism, to tilt our favor to them. And this week, we deal with the issue of faith and deeds. And so we're going to just kind of jump in and see what James is doing here. And he starts off with a question. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And the way he asks it, it sounds like the answer should be no. And that's where one of those situations happens where if we've been around church for a while, we say, well, wait a minute. I thought we were saved by faith. In fact, we read the passage from Ephesians earlier. And it said what? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not by works. And you say, well, well, now, wait a minute. James is saying, if someone has faith but no deeds, they can't be saved. So what's going on here? Well, let's read a little farther and see how James argues it. Because, again, part of what's going on is, remember, tractors and tractors. It's in some way the same thing as what's going on with faith here. And with deeds is, there's a difference in meaning. But James, 
we'll see, is really saying the same thing as Paul. Who's Paul? Paul's this other big writer in the New Testament, wrote many of the letters in the New Testament, including the letter to Ephesians that we read and the letter to Romans, maybe the most famous one. And he also sounds a lot like Jesus. But when we first read it, depending on our ideas, that's not what we hear. So he says, let's imagine a scenario. Suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily foods, daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? He says, imagine a situation. Somebody comes in, their clothes are raggedy, they haven't eaten in a couple days, they don't have any food at home, and your response to them is simply, the Lord bless you. Have a good day. And what James is asking is he's saying, did that help them in any way? Are they any better off now than when you did it? Or is what you did useless? He says, if you do that but do nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And the answer is, none. It's not any good. It hasn't done any good. And he says, so now, in the same way, verse 17, in the same way, in other words, in the same way, just offering a little pious prayer, offering thoughts and prayers to this person who has these issues, did nothing. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead or is useless. So what James is saying is, these two things have to go together. These faith and action have to go together. And so what does James mean by faith? I think James means the same thing that Paul does, the same thing that Jesus does. It's a matter of allegiance. It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of things. And so sometimes we reduce faith to simply a belief. We filled out a commitment card. We walked down an aisle. We said a prayer we had our belief, and as Dallas Willard says it, now we've got our barcode, and we're good, and so when we get to heaven, God will scan us, and we're all good to go. And what the writers of the New Testament consistently say, say, no, faith is something more, and I've really come to favor this idea of faith as a lead. And I was thinking about that in term, back to when, in 1988, when I was commissioned as an officer of the United States Army. And I took an oath of office. This is, I solemnly swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And then it says, and to swear true faith and allegiance to the same. And that word faith shows up in there. So now, I ask you a question. So if I took my oath of office, if I pledged to defend the United States, but then an enemy invaded, an army came in, and I was on my Xbox playing a game, doing nothing, and saying, ah, did, was I demonstrating true faith and allegiance to that? No. If the Constitution was being violated and I sat by and said, oh, that's okay, you can trample on their first and second and third and fourth and fifth amendment rights, it's no, it's fine. Was I living out the vow that I made? Was I bearing true faith and allegiance to the same. No. And that's what James is getting at. That's what Paul is getting at, is that we talk faith in Jesus 
it's not simply a statement of trust. It's following it up with those actions. It's not just enough to believe. And he gives these examples here. He talks about Abraham. Abraham, who was the epitome of faith. If you grew up in the days of Jesus and of James and you were telling the stories of the heroes of the faith, one of them would have been Abraham. And so he tells the story of Abraham. And he says, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So you see his faith and his actions were working together. And that's where we sometimes we want to separate. Well, there's faith and there's deeds. And James is saying you can't take those two apart. That faith includes deeds. And it's the same argument he made a little bit earlier when he kind of made this statement. He says, well, you know, some people have faith, some people have deeds. He says, no. He says the demons have got faith. They believe something. And do you think they're saved? And so here he says the same way with Abraham. There's these attitudes. But then James goes a little further. He doesn't just pick one of the heroes of the faith. He picks Rahab, a foreigner, possibly a prostitute. And he says in the same way, not even Rahab considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. So the story of Rahab, if you're not familiar, people of Israel have invaded. They're entering into the land and the spies have gone in to Jericho and they they get caught. They're about to get caught, and Rahab hides them and then says, I've heard about your God, and I believe in him, and I want to trust in him. So she protects them, and they say, if you follow what we say, then we'll protect your family. So she doesn't just believe in who God is. She trusts, and she follows it up with action. She does something with it, that faith is demonstrated by the action. Now, Here's where we step back and say, okay, how does this fit? How does this work with what Paul has said? How does these things, and what I want to say is, first of all, James is not saying that it's faith plus works that saves us. It is not faith plus works that saves us. Now you may be saying, well, that, that's what you were just saying, Pastor. That's not what I was saying. It's not faith plus works that save us. It's still faith alone. It's still grace alone. But what he is saying is that a true faith will manifest itself in action. If we put our trust in Jesus, if we call Jesus Lord, then we will act differently. We cannot profess faith without acting on it. Faith is not just belief, nor is it just action, but action attached to belief. He's saying there's not two, what James is saying is there's not two different kinds of faith. There, there's not the, the sort of like baby faith where like, oh, I just believe. And then later there's the faith where you're living it out. He's saying there's a true faith and there's no faith. And true faith includes living things out. True faith includes that allegiance. True faith includes that action. Now, it's not that there's this list of 50 things or, well, when I get to this amount of action, but it's more just simply that idea. You cannot profess faith in Jesus without doing something. Paul even made that point in Ephesians. We sometimes like to stop at verse 9. He says, not by works so that no one can boast. But then he goes on in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created.
created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 5. He says, so that you may do good deeds and bring glory to your Father in heaven. And somebody out here, maybe some of you Bible nerds are saying, well, what about the book of Romans? What about Romans that's all about justification by faith? Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Those two cannot be separated. You can't separate faith and obedience. It's not enough to say, oh, I believe in Jesus and then go do whatever you want because then you really haven't believed in Jesus. To put your faith in Jesus includes trying to live that life out. One more verse, Matthew chapter 28. We notice the Great Commission. Jesus comes before his disciples and he says what? All authority in the heaven and on earth has been given to me. What? Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and encouraging them to walk down the aisle and say a prayer. No. And teaching them to what? Obey everything that I have commanded you. Part of the gospel, part of the good news is necessarily obedience. We cannot accept a free gift of salvation without transferring allegiance to Jesus. So that's what James is getting at here when he's talking about faith. We might hear faith and works and, and think something differently. What James is saying is these two are united. You cannot separate them. What faith in Jesus looks like, which is what we're saying, true faith in Jesus looks like seeking to live out the gospel. True faith in Jesus looks like obedience to him. True faith in Jesus looks like that. So that's what James is getting at. It's still salvation by grace alone. So the works, the things we do, and so this is to be absolutely clear, the things we do do not earn us our salvation. The things we do do not earn that. We are saved purely by grace, by Jesus' actions on the cross. And so I remember in years of training, there were all these little little phrases, ways you could remember how to explain the good news to somebody. And one that I remember learning, you know, done versus do. You know, that some religions always talk about you do, you do, you do. And, and in Christianity, it's done. But what James wants to make clear is done doesn't mean we can give our life to Jesus and then not do anything. Done doesn't mean, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus and no transformation of life. What done means is it's been done for us. The works we do, the things we do, don't earn us our place, but it's a necessary, expected part of putting our faith, putting our allegiance in Jesus. So let us think about maybe how we can apply this. And so first, of all, kind of, we're kind of two categories of people. Those of you who are watching online, those of you who are sitting here who profess your faith in, faith in Jesus, how can this be a mirror in our life? How might this be speaking into our life? And so one of the questions we might ask is, as we read our Bible, as we're looking to it, how are we being called to obey? Sometimes it's tempting to say, oh, I want to go to my Bible and and I just, I want, I want a word of encouragement, which is a valuable part of it. Sometimes we need a word. But do we ever go and do we read our Bible and say, God, what are you calling me to obey? 
What are you calling me to do? And realizing that God expects obedience. Remember what Jesus said? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And Sermon on the Mount, remember that Sermon on the Mount that I talked about that's a lot like James? In that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells a little story. He says, imagine a house, a man building a house. He said, the man who hears my words and what? Puts them into practice is like a man who builds solid foundation. The one who puts, hears the words but does nothing with them is like someone who builds their house on sand. And living near the lake, we all know what happens to houses built on sand, right? They go. And so Jesus says the same thing. He says, you can't just hear the words. You have to do something with them. And so we ask ourselves, do I profess things? And then the story James told about seeing things and then doing nothing about them. And here's where it does become a little overwhelming. Because we all know that there are a lot of issues in the world around us. We all know, even if we were to look at one issue, say, poverty, that that one issue alone can be overwhelming. That none of us has the resources to meet every single need. Some of you probably get either emails or letters in your mailbox regularly from all kinds of organizations that are doing good work, that are helping kids learn how to read, that are clothing people, that are helping the homeless, that are battling cancer, that are bringing clean water to people, that are bringing food, and there's all these things. And none of us have a checkbook big enough to meet all those needs. And so James isn't suggesting that we have to meet every one of those needs. Nor do I think James is saying, here's the way to do it. But what James is saying is, it's not enough to look at an issue, to see something and to say, oh, it's okay. What I like to think of it this way is that there are all these needs in the world and there is some way that you are made, that you are created. And at some point, there's that intersection between a need of the world and the passion of your heart. Some of we read about issues of clean water in a country overseas, and that just, that tugs at our heart. Others of us hear about homeless people in Muskegon, and that grabs at us. Some people hear about racial inequality, and we say, oh, that's the thing that drives me. Some people hear about single mothers, some people it's the AIDS crisis, some people it's, it's famines overseas, whatever it is, there's something that strikes each and every one of us. And I think what James is saying is, what's that thing? And are you doing something about it? Are you making a difference or are you simply offering thoughts and prayers? The goal of the gospel is obedience. And so what James is saying is, if you have faith in Jesus, it's going to make a difference. It's going to make a difference in how you address the needs of the world, which is what James talks about here. But it's also going to make a difference in how you think about, am I seeking to grow to be like Jesus? Am I seeking to lie less? Am I seeking to control my anger? Am I seeking to lust less? All these things, am I seeking to be like Jesus? 
And the great thing is God helps us through that. God gives us his spirit to help us. And we open ourselves up. God, listen to this. God wants us to obey. That means he's going to help us do it. God isn't just a taskmaster who sends, here's the rules, drops them down on us and then walks away and says, come on, do better. But instead, God sends his spirit to help us live this out. So how, if you've professed your faith in Jesus, are you living out that allegiance? Are you living out that true faith and allegiance now, for those of you either watching or maybe sitting here saying, well, I haven't gone to that part. What I want you to hear is this message, that you can do all the good stuff you want in the world. You can feed every single hungry person in the United States. You can clothe nations around the world. You can do all those things. But that will not earn you salvation all the good works you can possibly do. Because we might be tempted to hear this and think, oh, if I'm doing good stuff, then I'm good with God. No. Remember, we are saved by faith through grace alone. Doing good works in and of itself does not save you. The only path to salvation, the only path to life and life eternal with Jesus is through faith, which is allegiance to Jesus, which is Trusting him to say, I cannot do it on my own. And to trust in his death and his resurrection to save us and then to live out that true faith and allegiance. So if you're sitting in that place and, and thinking, well, I've done all sorts of good things. I'm on a good relationship with God. If you have not put your trust in Jesus, if you have not sworn true faith and allegiance to him, if you have not said, God, I need you. I can't do it on my own. Then I would invite you to do that. If you're looking for life and life eternal, to give your life to him, to swear true faith and allegiance, and to say, God, I need you. And so it's an invitation to place your faith in Jesus, to give your life to him. And so where are you at today? Are you at that place where you've professed your faith in Christ? And then do you need the Spirit's help to point you in the direction and to grow and to guide? Because that's what God wants to do, is to grow us in our obedience. To grow us in looking so that the words we say and the things we do match up. And God wants you to help you do that. So pray and ask God to help you. Or if you're in that place where you're trusting in your good works, I would invite you instead to trust in Jesus, to trust in him for your life. And if you have questions about what that looks like, you can talk to me, you can send me an email, send me a text, do something. And so we can talk more about what those next steps look like. But know that when you put your trust in Jesus, you have life and life eternal. James invites us to this amazing life, this amazing life that God has given to us. We've been created to bring glory to God and to be a blessing to the world. And we do that as we hear what God has said and as we live out our faith through allegiance to him. Amen.